0: Welcome to episode two of Taking the Universe Around the World. I'm currently in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, we did a show last night, a very nice show. Just outside my hotel window at the moment is... Uh, there's some construction work going on, so every now and again you might hear uh, an intermittent moment of, uh, of, of panel beating um, or something involving a girder being swung by a crane. And uh, the uh, I, I've got... Uh, Brian and uh, Steph have, have rooms with... Um, views of the sea and I have a view of the car park but in many ways that's the the view that I'd rather have who knows what's going to happen in the car park I've even got a balcony that I can look out actually stand on the balcony and view the comings and goings and the uh, nefarious dealings of uh, of this particular car park in Madison I've just been uh, just woken up and uh, had breakfast and then uh, annoyingly just seen that that um Alex Jones is uh, is trending, of course, a, 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 a cruel man, a cruel vitamin salesman who um, also demonised those who uh, lost children in various school shootings, a quite repugnant thing. And I, and I was thinking about Elmer Gantry, some of you will know the book Elmer Gantry, some of you, probably, perhaps even more, will know the fantastic film with Burt Lancaster, probably one of his finest performances, and he's a kind of revivalist preacher. At a mighty hard time but i'm on my way At a mighty hard time but i'm on my way it's and i realized i'm sure you've already realized this but it's a fascinating thing to watch kind of the state of a lot of the uh american news hucksters and the simple realisation that this is just TV evangelism it's exactly whereas previously of course the idea was that uh, um, they would fleece you in the name of Jesus and now they fleece you in the name of some kind of it's not even an ersatz idea of of freedom so uh, they have replaced the holy water um, with uh, some kind of vitamin supplement and that is it but anyway that's not what I'm here to tell you about And we'll get to those things later on. So, um, anyway, here... Here's what's been going on on the Horizons tour. I didn't explain, by the way, if you've not listened to an episode before. Basically, uh, every one of these episodes is just the story of taking the Horizons show with Brian Cox around uh, initially America and Canada. And then we go on around the UK and to Ireland and to Australia, New Zealand, Singapore uh, and Germany and Iceland and many more. But uh, let's start in New Haven. In the morning we go for a walk around New Haven. Brian's directional capabilities are excellent if you're dealing with a cosmological scale or also with a kind of Feynman's diagram scale, but they are disastrous on a terrestrial level. And he has an incisive ability to always turn 180 degrees in the wrong direction. I try to manage to recalibrate his routing throughout and and predominantly succeed. I, I think the fact that every single hotel we've stayed in so far, when he walks out of the lift, he will go in the opposite direction to his room. And I think without me, he'd just end up probably most nights sleeping in that place where you go and collect ice out of that ice machine. Anyway, so we wander around and we find coffee as well as a small spinach omelette for me and a large bowl of lentil soup for Brian. When on tour, there is no shame in soup for breakfast. Walking back to the hotel, despite Brian's best efforts to walk us into the wilderness, at a crosswalk, I look behind me and notice grey matter books. This is problematic because already I've been buying quite a lot of books. We've still got over three weeks to go, but I look in their shop window and there is a vivid display of lurid 1960s pulp novels. So I can't help but pop in and on the shelves inside I find a paperback of Bram Stoker's The Lair of the White Worm, which was of course turned into quite a campy film. By Ken Russell in the late 1980s I'm sure you remember it There was Hugh Grant and uh, Peter Capaldi And Amanda Donohoe uh, amongst others It's, it's quite a, it, it's a fun film It's kind of Ken Russell making uh, a Hammer movie Just back from the Highland Games You picked a fine time to go and I've developed rather a taste for it Might even go back tomorrow With more smoke Dynamite I thought I've saved you the trouble And uh, in this copy of the book though Each page has very neat underlinings and many of them so I presume that the first owner seriously studied this novel which does read again like a a kind of quite a a pulpy thriller uh, it's surprising that it's as old as it is because it would fit very well with the 1960s or even almost 1970s horror thrillers it's lots of things such as uh, he was on the high road to mental disturbance, his brain was active and to deal with memory the legions of whirring wings his overwrought brain In his sleep he arose, and as if in obedience, far beyond him in his normal state, taking the chest on his shoulder. Not entirely sure what all of that means, but anyway, that is part of Bram Stoker's book. Sadly, I can't make out the signature inside the book, or I would go in search of academic papers on Bram Stoker by this particular scribbler, because I presume this might have been something for a Yale study course back in the 1970s. The bookseller also allows me to climb into the window to look at the pulp display. I survey the covers, then I open the books at random. If a sentence strikes me, then I decide the book needs to be mine. So I end up with, amongst others, Barbara Hoffman's Desire in the Female, a new analytical study of the causes and results of women's sexual desires. William A. Austin's Commit the Sins, In The Coloured Footlights, Champ was apart from other musicians. He was vibrant, living nervously back and forth in the confined space. The shadows on his face accentuated the craggy features and looked like the personification of evil. Dark. Forbidding. Magnetic. Steve Bell's Venus of Lesbos. Long-legged, clad in nothing but the sun. She was a beautiful sex machine. And Lillian Dowling's Sexy Psycho you got to be a sexy psycho to understand it, but you don't have to be one to appreciate reading it. Brian also finds a book on 19th century railway track innovation, but decides not to buy it. It's a big book. At the next crosswalk... Brian is stopped by someone and I am very surprised that he actually remains standing and talking because more often than not, when strangers approach Brian, again, someone who is happy to be approached by subatomic particles, he doesn't like being really approached by anything that's large and, uh, and molecular. But he stops and he talks and I wait for him and it turns out it's a man called Keith Semple. Semple is fascinated in cosmology and is also a frequent contestant on TV talent shows from pop stars The Rivals to American Idol. He's in New Haven to play with his band Semple. In another piece of synchronicity stroke coincidence depending on how Jungian you are, his current drummer is also one of King Crimson's drummers. And I happened to watch In the Court of King Crimson an excellent documentary about their work and the desire to find senses of peak consciousness while they're playing just a few nights ago. Also, King Crimson's lead singer, Jacko, was one of the last people I saw before I left for the USA. Brian has a lovely chat with him and they agree to meet in Chicago. Then we have our car journey to Boston which passes without incident but we have one flapjack each. That's pretty much it. Sadly also there's no exciting billboards. Uh, Even Jesus Saving isn't out on the highway today. In Boston, Brian realises that he needs new luggage. Brian adores luggage shopping almost as much as I love book browsing. We find his favourite luggage shop. I don't even have a favourite luggage shop. There's such shame in this. And he browses bags of many shapes and forms, some with secret pockets, some with surprising abilities to expand, some with near-magical buckles. Eventually he finds the one he needs, the one that he can truly imagine, putting some things in the manager asks him if he would like a bag for his bag but he decides the bag itself will do we pause for coffee and cheesecake then we walk across Boston Common and we see a graveyard fenced in by wrought iron we browse the mausoleum names I always like looking at the names on gravestones and mausoleums it's a good place actually to find the names of characters if you're trying to write a novel or short story I am particularly taken by this name Lemuel A. Coolidge. There's a little time for reading, as I'm getting behind on my book for every city project, and actually had no time for the New Haven author Bernard Wolfe the day before, so I start now. The Glantz Masterworks edition begins with an introduction from Harlan Ellison, who I am a huge admirer of. And this also goes some way to explaining why the book was recommended by Neil Gaiman. Neil and Harlan were great friends, and it's very much worth your time finding the documentary Dreams with Sharp Teeth and just watch them in conversation. They're going to think that I didn't know how to put the roof in. Yeah, they they, they always blame the writer. Always, they know it's a collaborative medium, and yet they always blame the writer. And when I say they, I mean people like, like uh, well, Gene Siskel never did it, but, but Roger Ebert, who should know better, Roger Ebert constantly does it, most film critics do it, stinking script. Uh, nobody ever made a good movie from a bad script. It is possible to make a bad movie from a good script. You will find, amongst other things, the greatest ways of avenging yourself against any publisher that might have wronged you. Also, there's a lovely conversation with Robin Williams in it as well. Ellison writes of finishing reading Limbo for the first time, Yes, this was reading. This was what reading was all about. You had to have more. Had to have periodic transfusions from this man's supply of imagination. Amongst other things, Wolfe was one of Leon Trotsky's bodyguards, and Ellison points out that his excellence as a bodyguard is demonstrated by the fact that Trotsky was not assassinated until Wolfe had left his employment. I start limbo with even greater excitement. Tonight is a night off, so Lee, our tour manager, Brian and I have a very leisurely dinner, served by an ebullient waiter, Eugene. And the night ends with Brian telling us stories of large bats getting stuck on his face and also going nearly mad from malaria medicine on the way to Caracas. After a fitful sleep full of shadowy dreams, I wake up and try to recall which author was plagued with nightmares whenever he ate roast beef. Now, I had no roast beef the night before. But we did have a richer meal than usual and my kind of fading analogue body now seems to have taken a dislike to creamy sauces and so they just rise up into my brain and there the visions come. In fact, I think that author ended up deliberately eating roast beef when he had writer's block, hoping that again that would bring a uh, kind of uh, fetid and febrile imagination to the forefront of his lobes. I also dreamt of my mother last night. I was carefully walking her to a chair and I've been thinking about her a lot recently. She died shortly before Lemmy and David Bowie and the further away that I travel from her death the more I'm able to retrieve those memories of her from before she was unwell. It's quite an unjust behaviour of the memory that the recall of the person when sick can block the memories of better days. It can take a lot of effort. To see the happy times. Today is our first trip on the tour bus. After our Boston show, we will cross the Canadian border around 2.30am, so I won't put my pyjamas on. We fill in the vaccine documents required. Brian sails through his, but I mole-like and myopic peer and jab at the screen like someone unprepared for this century. We have a very jolly waitress this morning, though not overbearingly so and she admires Brian's camera, and he gives her advice of how to capture the image of her dog racing towards her that she's keen to obtain. It's something to do with the F-stop, but I can't remember what. Lee is able to offer advice too. I can only mumble something about the Wildlife Photographer of the Year awards and what might be learned from that. Then I just decide it's best to retreat back into my yoghurt and berries. I'm close to finishing the copy edits of my next book, Bibliomaniac, and with that, The creative work is done, bar recording the audiobook and obviously some kind of relentless publicity drive whenever I can fit it in between the Horizons tours. I'm pleased with the number of books and bookshops that it leaps around and ventures into. The chapter that I've just finished includes Audrey Lord, Sue Townsend, Bagpuss, Derek Jarman, Kenneth Williams, John Betjeman and Tony Blackburn. The book also has had the fewest editing notes that I've ever had which either means that I'm beginning to know what I'm doing when I write a book or that my publisher has now given up on me and all of my terrible wranglings and feuds. At lunchtime, Brian and I go to run around Boston Common with the addition of some squats and press-ups which people always find really surprising that I actually do some form of exercise. I am in that shape and form which people just imagine that I... uh, I barely have any form of kind of uh, internal muscular structure. But I really do. And I I enjoy doing uh, exercise uh, after I've done it, but not obviously during. We then drink coffee on the grass and share a cookie. There's a huge gust of wind that suddenly picks up our detritus, flips over my cookie and propels a paper bag across the park. And Brian leaps to his feet and runs after it. He actually stands up, he says, I'm going to get that. And it is like watching this wonderful version of American Beauty suddenly being invaded by chariots of fire. Or oh, just a fun run. I'm pleased to say that he succeeds In catching the bag, this will be one of his finest achievements today. Possibly over the whole of the tour as well. We will always remember that day on the Common, where Brian caught a bag. My cookie flipped over onto the dry soil, but I ate it anyway, brushing off the mud dust on the chocolate chips. Psychosomatically at least, well I hope psychosomatically, the chocolate now seems to have just a little hint of a kind of taste of dog excrement. But this is not Baltimore. I should be very careful here by the way When I say this is not Baltimore Some of you might think Oh are you saying Baltimore is just all full of dog shit I'm not saying that at all uh, It's just a reference to one of my favourite uh, films When I was a teenager Which is uh, Pink Flamingos So uh, that that's the only reason That I'm suggesting that Baltimore Is more excremental than Boston I could have a siesta to catch up On my dreamful sleep But Brattle Bookshop is very close. And last time I was there, I bought Linda Nochlin's Women, Art and Power, which includes her brilliant essay, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists. So I can't resist popping in again. And I am immediately drawn yet again to the pulp, which happens to be near the entrance. And I pick up the film tie-in of Richard Matheson's Somewhere in Time. Magnificent lovers from two different eras Explode in passion I'm a huge fan of Richard Matheson He wrote the story Which the Incredible Shrinking Man movie Is based on, I think it's just called The Shrinking Man As far as I remember, and I Am Legend Which uh, I've banged on about Many, many times But has never successfully Been turned into a film You have uh, The Last Man on Earth Movie with Vincent Price You have The Omega Man with Charlton Heston And you have I Am legend with Will Smith and all of them fail to represent the brilliance uh, the wit and the melancholy of I am legend in fact the nearest you get is the cheapest version is Vincent Price's last man on earth is Europe's disease carried on the wind is it Ben? could be and if it is it isn't verge is that what you really think, or just what you'd like to think? I, I cannot accept half baked theories that sell newspapers. I'm I'm a scientist, not an alarmist. Um I won't go on about it too much. But anyway, the the worst version is definitely the uh the version I am legend with with Will Smith which I I was kind of not frustrated by and then suddenly there's a point I think about 58 minutes and 32 seconds in where you go no 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 you right whoever's put the screenplay together has not understood the story at all and and not even understood the title of the book right let's move on I also pick up Earl Stanley Gardner's The Case of the Baited Hook which is for an Edinburgh friend of mine because she loves Earl Stanley Gardner and I know she sent me a list of a few of the Earl Stanley Gardners she hasn't got uh, but it actually turns out she has got this one Earl Stanley Gardner is of course the creator of Perry Mason Also, I find the film tie-in novel for the Roger Corman movie, Bloody Mama, starring Shelley Winters. And I get one called About the Kinsey Report, Sexual Behaviour in the Human Male. And uh, I think the pinnacle of this browse is the first ace paperback edition of Philip K. Dick's Doctor Blood Money. And I also get a copy of Jeff Dyer's latest book in hardback, where it's a snip at $10. I'll throw in another recommendation here, something I've talked about many times. I would always recommend the work of Jeff Dyer. Um, the Ongoing Moment is a tremendous book about photography. Zona is a remarkable book about Tarkovsky's Stalker. But Beautiful is an incredible collection of jazz stories. Anyway, I like Jeff Dyer, and I'm looking forward to reading his latest book. Tonight my friend Helen is coming along. Helen was married to Barry Crimmins. Barry is one of my comedy heroes. I got to know Barry and sadly before I got to know him really well Barry died of cancer. I bang on about this so often. Sorry this is very much an episode which is about me banging on about stuff. Um, I bang on about this a lot but I'm going to bang on again. If you've not seen Bobcat Goldthwaites movie about Barry, Call Me Lucky, then your life is such a long way from being complete. And if you have any interest in comedy, if you have any interest in the nature of fighting against bullies and power structure, if you have, if you have any interest in what it is to be a really good human being, you need to watch Call Me Lucky. He was a guy who you heard about before you actually saw this whispered about presents. I never met anyone like them. Went to Kentucky, I got into a big hassle. I got caught smuggling books into Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> got off on a technicality, no one could prove they were books. Uh, when I, I spoke to Barry for my book, I'm a Joke and So Are You, he told me one of the things which sticks with me most And I think it's so important as well when we have people who pretend they're edgy comedians when, as Barry himself would say, all they're really doing is upholding the uh, oppressive status quo. And he said the thing you need to remember when you're doing stand-up is that words are shrapnel and you need to think about where you are directing that shrapnel. That didn't mean that he was some kind of huge inverted commas around this snowflake or whatever you want to say. It just meant that he was extremely thoughtful about who he wanted to take down, who he wanted to attack and why he wanted to attack them. I'm pleased that Helen's brought me her book, May to May, which is a beautiful collection of photographs and memories of Barry up to his death and memories also beyond that. And I'm, I'm proud to say that I wrote a few words for the book. Barry was a great human being, a very funny comedian, one of Kurt Vonnegut's favourites. Stephen Wright wrote of Barry in the book, My friend changed my life. Our relationship was based on great laughter and great respect. I will always miss him. Nico Case remembers the words of Barry's that most resonate. Be brave enough to listen. And that reminds me again to also recommend someone else's book, which is Catherine Mannix's book called listen which is about having that bravery to listen when we did a benefit show to help fund at, at the time it was uh, helen had cancer and um being based in america the expenses of of well basically trying to survive cancer were enormous we did a benefit and there was uh, billy bragg and charlotte church and daniel kitson grace petrie josie long many people there and um helen wrote me a little speech to 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 read out. I'd said to her, you know, because we're doing this gig, do 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 you want me to do you want to record something that we can play to the audience? Or and uh, one of the things that she wrote, the the final line of her message for the audience in the Wimbledon Theatre that night is sometimes when you ask me how I am, that's all you need to say. And that is something that. I try to keep in the back of my mind a great deal when talking to people going through um, trauma, pain, loss, illness. I'm not sure that I'm very good at it yet, but I'll keep practising. Tonight the Boston show is delayed. It seems that only half of the -the state-of-the-art screen is working, which means you'll only get half a black hole and half a galaxy amongst all the other cosmological considerations. So I end up going out front of curtain uh, and fill time and then the first half is half screen. It's quite fun doing the front of curtain because there's almost no stage to stand on. Eventually Brian comes out as well, so we do end up looking very much like Morecambe and Wise at the beginning of one of their TV specials. After great work by the crew, the screen is full again for part two, so my stand-up slot is sacrificed for a fly through the universe from the point of its creation, which I think is an understandable relegation for me. After that show, we get aboard that tour bus and it's going to take us to the destinations for the next three weeks. As far as Salt Lake City, though, that is actually going to change, but I'll tell you about that later on. Brian has a room at the back with a double bed and a big telly and he shows off to us going, Ha ha, look at me, I've got a big double bed and you've all got to sleep in bunks. But unfortunately, at bedtime, Brian discovers the hideous truth of his luxury. It is situated directly above the loud hum and thrum of the engine. So, he doesn't sleep in his double bed. He sleeps in a bunk, just like us. Ah, that terrible egalitarian moment. We're all in our bunks to the Canadian border. We cross the border into Canada seamlessly at about 4am. Brian has revived his memories of rock and roll touring across Europe in the late 80s and early 90s and he finds sleep in his bunk quite easy But that said, I don't think he'll go that far into his past. I don't think he'll revisit the palette he had in those days. His 21st century professorial cultivation means that Thunderbird wine is unlikely to find its way back onto the tour rider. He thinks tour buses weren't so noisy 30 years ago, but I think he was probably just more pissed 30 years ago and so didn't really notice the background noise of mayhem due to intoxication taking the edge off his senses. We arrive in Ottawa at 7am and disembark to bed. Hopefully we will sleep through today's Freedom Rally in which bikers in stormtrooper helmets rev through the streets demanding the end to mandates that have already ended. Later in the day I try to find out exactly what the protest in Ottawa is about. The woman behind the counter in the bookshop says she can't quite work out what their beef is either. She also tells me that during the big trucker protest, the bookshop was forced to close for a month. It seems that forcing the closure of shops that were forced to close during the height of the pandemic is a funny protest against the forced closure of businesses. But what do I know? A Canadian in the hotel is similarly nonplussed. But then I'm introduced to a Belgian who tells me how great Brexit is, and Britain's, or rather England and Wales's, decision to leave the EU has made it a beacon around the world for freedom and success. I try not to tell him too many of the actual truths of what's going on. Much like when Fox News told the world that Birmingham was a no-go area for non-Muslims, it seems that the UK is a sort of nasty Narnia, a fictional land to project your right-wing dreams of freedom on. We sleep through until lunchtime, and then, over broths and salads, Brian tells me about abstracting information from a glass of water, wormholes, and how two universes can become one, and one universe can become many. We go for a walk through the park where people are tanning and frisbeeing, and marvel at the multiple locks of the Rideau Canal, eight locks in a row. It's magnificent engineering. I love canal locks. They are one of my favourite things of just dreaming about how they were created. I'm very lucky I live near a canal when I'm back in the UK. And uh, I've never got bored of, of watching that mechanism. Crossing the Ottawa River, there are good-natured protesters draped in their maple leaves. The ones we see seem happy to be protesting. The issue of the protest itself seems probably secondary more bikers in stormtrooper helmets rev by. I spot the Museum of Civilization. Brian has to return to finish his book on black holes, so I make a detour, but it turns out that Civilization has closed early this afternoon. Earlier than might be expected, as may well be the case eventually. The Art Gallery only has an hour left, so I'll leave that for tomorrow. Last time I was there, there was a fine exhibition of portraits of Nietzsche. Would he have seen those motorcyclists as the supermen that some of them might think they are? I admire Louise Bourgeois' spider that stands mightily outside the gallery. Her exhibition at the Tate Modern is still one of my favourite exhibitions I've ever seen. She was an artist in perpetual motion of reinvention. She wrote, The spider is a repairer. If you bash into the web of a spider, she doesn't get mad. She weaves and repairs it she is one of my favourite artists. Now I'm getting really behind in my international reading challenge. After Bernard Wolfe's limbo for New Haven I've been forced to skip Boston but I will return that's probably going to be a Dennis Lehane I think and I'll always set the rule or at least I did set the rule that it was not necessary to read the whole of the book in the specific city as long as I've read it in the duration of the tour that tour is going to carry on until April next year so I've still got a lot to read and that's when we go across mainland Europe. I pop into Paige's bookshop to find something for Ottawa and Montreal. I think Michelle who is attending the Ottawa gig is going to drop off an Ottawa book of her choosing too but I get one just in case. I pick up two reasonably simple books Ottawa Rewind by Andrew King which I'm particularly struck by chapter 15 Ottawa Planet X and the Doomsday Prophecy. For Montreal, I pick up Bronwyn Chester's Island of Trees. Fifty trees, fifty tales of Montreal. She writes, Maple growing in the ground, who's the sweetest to be found? I also pick up magazines that are hard to find in the UK now Borders is long gone, The Skeptical Inquirer and Shock Cinema. I also used to read the American version of The Sceptic, but I've kind of found that it seems to lean a little bit too much to the right wing libertarian, in the same way that I found elements of the atheist movement to be a little culturally traditional. I go to the park to sit in the dusk and read, passing a beautiful bust that commemorates the Armenian photographer Yusuf Karsh. His photographs of Winston Churchill, Martin Luther King, Ernest Hemingway, and Albert Einstein are truly iconic and he deserves that street corner statue where his bronze head sits atop a box camera. There are too many statues to generals and not enough to artists and teachers. The park also has a statue called Twist 1.5 by Ken Guild and Alex Weiss. They describe it as a wooden spiral wind-veined thing and it was created as the public watched. I read of Ottawa while others corral energetic children or flirt on FaceTime. I read of its branch of Kenny Rogers Roasters, the country music-style rotisserie chicken chain which had an ambience that was reminiscent of an army mess hall or upscale penitentiary. Despite this proviso, it is fondly recalled. I also enjoy reading of Ottawa's motels. As a fan of the photographer Martin Parr's books of boring postcards and holiday camp publicity photographs, I love reading about things like motel design, the highlight is Motel Deville at 333 Montreal Road. I also read about Frederick Knapp's dream of an iron tube ship that would conquer the waves with its unique and ultimately unsuccessful design. Then I read of the lost fountains of shopping malls and the serpent that terrorised Chats Lake. Brian is eventually brimful of entanglement and so we go to the gym and lift some things and push some other things. Afterwards, we eat and plan future monkey cages, boldly imagining trips to Tanzania and the Antarctic. And I finish the night reading reviews of The Dead Mountaineers Hotel and The Sewers of Paradise in my copy of Shock Cinema. Brian and I eat our scrambled eggs to Je t'aime moi non plus by Serge Gasborg and Jane Birkin. civilised breakfast including muffins soundtracked by dashed love and breathy sexual hopes of course while France had Gansborg and Birkin it was reworked for the British market by Frankie Howard and June Whitfield though I personally think the better English language version is sung by Nick Cave and Anita Lane i go, i go That said, would Nick Cave be any good as Lurkio? Well, we'll just have to wait and see. Before that, we'd been listening to Bonnie and Clyde, also by Gainsbourg and Bridget Bardot. Now, this was a song that really haunted me during the worst periods of insomnia that I had, when I was going through very long patches of very, very, very little sleep while on a very, very, very long tour. I would close my eyes, lie in bed, wait, wait, wait and then I would suddenly hear this strange caterwauling sound this is a strange caterwauling sound that permeates the Bonnie and Clyde song it's this kind of like oh, 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 oh. and it would just play on a loop in my head and I would just be cursing the ceiling and teetering on the cusp of hallucination and probably very often actually falling over onto the other side of a hallucination Apparently, I think it was Danny Baker, but I might be wrong. Um, but I think it was Danny Baker's radio show where he played that song and would ask people if they could work out what instrument or what human actually made that noise. And um, it's, it's never been successfully solved, that particular problem. Anyway, after that very French breakfast. Brian decides he would continue to battle with the final chapter of his Black Holes book, which he's writing with Jeff Forshaw. So I take a walk. And now we're in the kind of ornate, gothically decorated, bright, and inviting cultural area of Ottawa. Obviously, inviting when it's uh, not occupied by uh, extremely angry truckers. And it doesn't take me, though, many steps downtown to hear a homeless man shouting at a bawling child across the street. It's just about, shut up, shut up. And uh, next to him, another homeless man is uh, is pissing very fluently in a doorway. I also just find it horribly fascinating on, on this trip and so many other journeys that I take, the, the speed in which you just take one step from what is very carefully decorated for the tourist area and then just go oh and the the poverty starts here of course the poverty doesn't just start there it leaks all the way back and, you know, the, the homelessness through, through poverty or mental illness or abuse or all three is always even more galling in a capital city in the same way when we were in, in Washington, D.C. just a few days before. You know, it's a reminder that governments of whatever stripe so often fail to create the net that can catch many who are falling. And this also reminds me to reread uh, Rule's book, Theory of Justice. Anyway, I duck off the main drag on my way to Barely Bruised Books. Now, I quite often just choose my bookshop. I, I, do, I do judge the bookshop by the cover. I do judge uh, the bookshop by the name that it has. And Barely Bruised Books just seemed, I thought, this this sounds like an interesting place. And then I'm, I'm walking down this side street, and there the shop is situated above a laundromat. and uh, And you walk through, and there's very nicely done just like kind of, different paintings and uh, different just signs telling you that this is the bookshop and this is where to go and uh, also a reminder in the stairwell that the books that are there are not free and it would be preferable if you brought them upstairs and paid for them there but it is just the kind of bookshop that I really like because it is both ramshackle and ordered as well, and when I walk in the owner is helping a woman with books on the nature of evil and also artificial intelligence, so he directs her towards Nietzsche and towards Ray Kurzweil. He asked me if I'm after anything in particular, and I explained that I am a very, very broad browser, and as I listened to him talking to other customers as well, I can tell he's one of those kind of autodidact booksellers with the ability to direct people to books that they didn't know existed but fit exactly with the prescription that they're after. To me, he points out the shelves which are curated by customers. Now, this reminds me actually that yesterday in Page's bookshop in Ottawa, I saw a sign that was new to me. There were two big tables of books with the sign, Books as seen on TikTok. This is not a shop. Of books, as seen on TikTok, unless obviously I start a TikTok account, and and then it may be. The first book I pick up from the customer curated shelves is Delmore Schwartz's "In Dreams Begin Responsibilities." Again, I'm judging by the cover. It's just such a beautiful title. And it's an author that I know nothing of. He's described as an acute social observer and is best known through his legend as a poet, Maudit. Maudit? I hope that's right. Um, I also got told later on that he was a tutor of Lou Reed and had been a great influence on Lou Reed. Near his book, I see another one by Helena Parente Kuna called Woman Between Mirrors. That on the back is described as part of a tradition of innovative writing by Brazilian women begun by Clarice Lispector. Now, Clarice Lispector is another person on my list of people whose books I really must read because they are recommended to me often. I decide with this novel, I'm just going to open it at random and then I'll decide whether it's going to be mine. And the first sentence I see is, The woman who writes me hears the sound of the rain and thinks of me. She wants to write me and she will with her hands bandaged bloodstains on the gauze i'm captured i browse lazily trying to turn down my usual alertness around the shelves as i'm very aware there is much i will want that will weigh me down too much when there are still 18 days of this leg of the tour to go I decide that Her Own Woman, a series of essays by female Canadian authors about Canadian women, is a good book for travel. There's also a very cheap copy of the pocketbook version of Daniel P. Mannix's We Who Are Not As Others, which is stories of those who worked the circus freak shows. And I think was then reprinted by research books, formerly Search and Destroy books, just quite simply as freaks with a lot more illustrations. On top of that, there's also The Invasion from Mars, a study in the psychology of panic by Hadley Cantrell. And this includes the complete script of Orson Welles' War of the Worlds radio broadcast, which created such an incredible just panic and fear and terror and is seen as one of the masterpieces of radio I meet the bookshop cat, and I'm told that he's really the manager. The cat moves with great self-possession, questioning your choices. It looks like an erudite cat. Fortunately, totting up the books takes just long enough for me to realise that I really do need that copy of Don't Look Now, with Julie Christie on the cover. Once owned by Fraser and Betty Brown, who, as you can see from the first page, owned an ink stamp of their names to make it very clear they expected any books they lent you to be returned. The child struggled to her feet and stood before him, the pixie hood falling from her head onto the floor. He stared at her, incredulity turning to horror. You know that line, obviously, that's from the final paragraph, or, or nearly the final paragraph of Daphne du Maurier's Don't Look Now. I'll weave my way back through the side streets, past can-handed homeless men and women, and then stylish brunch imbibers with freshly squeezed orange juice and blackberry-smattered pancakes. At a crosswalk, a car honks its horn. It almost makes me jump. And that reminds me that if I'm finding this noise incongruous, I am no longer in the USA. I must be in Canada. Not only are there far fewer guns in Canada, there are also just far fewer angry drivers. I've got enough time before our designated jog and press-up session to take a look at the National Gallery of Canada. There's an exhibition of Canadian Impressionists. I'm predominantly ambivalent about Impressionism. Though, at the same time, I'm also a great admirer of Walter Sickert, whose work grows out from that movement. My favourites of this exhibition are those that are kind of lonely in approaching that cold, almost Norwegian look, such as uh, Maurice Cullen's Moret Winter, or Moret Winter, you, you can find out for me, and Emily Carr's Autumn in France. I'm also impressed by Marc Aurel Defoy Foy-Souzor Côté's Symphony Pathétique and Helen McNichol's The chintz Sofa. I know nothing about Helen McNichol until now. She was active in the Society of Women Artists and was later elected to the Society of British Artists when there were very, very, very few women artists who were allowed to join. Laura Muncy's interesting story shows two girls embroiled in a book. It reminded me of a playground Brian and I passed in Manhattan. All the youngsters were cannoning around, save for one boy was intensely reading a book there's your future scientist i said to brian mind you i was that boy once and i am still struggling with quantum entanglement in the gallery on the duchamp wall i see one of my favorite jokes of his a snow shovel entitled in advance of a broken arm running out of time i go into the Rideau chapel Inside this reconstruction of sacredness, there is also Janet Cardiff's The Forty-Part Mowing." I think I've experienced this before at the Tate Modern. Spread around the chapel are 40 speakers, each one the recording of a single voice in a choir, performing a reworking of Thomas Tallis's Spem in Allium. Sit in the middle, and you hear the choir as a whole. Walk from speaker to speaker, and you change the dominant voice, or capture a moment of silence. As I sat there, it reminded me of the importance of transcendent moments, of that peak experience, of what Robert Fripp talked about in terms of what he's trying to recreate at every single King Crimson gig. It's something that sometimes evidence based minds of science might want to shy away from. I think religion has cornered too much of this, made such reverie and transcendence almost embarrassing to some of those who are seeking equations. But there's no shame in it. I hope some of the Horizon show delivers that idea too. Back at the hotel, Brian has gained momentum with his black hole and so decides to keep writing. And I go to the gym. It's too hot and sunny for a pale man like me to risk press-ups in the park. The Ottawa gig has been sold out for a while now, so we have an extra level of excitement about this one. And outside the stage door, I meet Heather and her husband. They've been playing real golf all day and I try to explain crazy golf to them because that's the game that I play with my son. We love playing it and it's about as competitive as we get. We're just not very competitive people apart from around a small facsimile windmill. Heather kindly gives me some sweets, two coffee mug thermoses for Brian and I and a book, Real Ottawa by Dan Lalande. It's a memoir of growing up movie obsessed in the cinemas of Ottawa. Quite rightly, Heather is also a John Hurt fan and she wants to know what is my favourite and there is no denying The Elephant Man is one of my most watched films. Could you care to see my brother? Your mother? Oh, but she's... Mr Merrick, she's beautiful. Oh, she has She had the face of an angel. During lockdown, noticing it was Certificate 12, I thought, ah, I could watch that with my son and I'd quite forgotten... Just how emotionally brutal it is. It took some time for us all to come down from that. Heather has a very interesting choice of favourite John Hurt movie. The mismatched cop buddy movie Partners with Ryan O'Neill. How many of you have seen that? The Ottawa audience are a delight. Tonight we take the tour bus to Montreal. The city with the Nick Cave exhibition that I've been aching to see which is closed on Monday. No Nina Simone chewing gum. Thank you very much for listening to Taking the Universe Around the World. Uh, Episode four will be soon where we'll continue actually predominantly in Canada. Montreal, Toronto, and Toronto, and then cross the border back into the USA. Thank you very much to anyone who supports Cosmic Shambles via Patreon. Uh, The Horizons Tour continues around Canada and America. I think um, Vancouver, Calgary, and Edmonton are possibly um, sold out, but there are still tickets for Seattle, Sacramento, Portland, and Houston, amongst others. And then, obviously, we continue to the UK. And, in fact, uh, six nights at... The Royal Opera House at the beginning of August have just gone on sale. Thank you very much to our producer, Trent Burton, as well. And uh, my book, Bibliomaniac, comes out in the autumn, but you can buy The Importance of Being Interested with a forward by Brian Cox right now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.